Good morning, everyone. Well, there ain't no one like Jesus Christ, my Lord. Oh, his word is pure and sharper than a sword. I'm doing that. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Thanks.
All right, I'm back. And uh, again, if you haven't turned there already, please go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to wrap up our study today, as you can see on the board, those who have the video. We'll wrap up our study today in Ephesians 2.20 by noting that, that uh, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church and what that means, that metaphor. So we got Paul using, just lining up myself with the camera, I just uh, we uh, basically uh, seeing that Paul's using another metaphor here uh, to uh, discuss uh, the church's relationship to Jesus Christ. And uh, so uh, without any further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer. As is our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental Verbal overactive sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing, and we maintain that fellowship simply by obeying what the Spirit's teaching us in the Scriptures. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, Disturbing and distracting to you, do what First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us. We thank you for this blessing of another day. And uh, we know we're to live our lives in light of the imminency of our death, which or the, or the rapture of the church, which is imminent. We know that you've given us a great future, a resurrection body and rewards if we're faithful in this life and uh, at the famous seat and uh, just uh, reigning with your son, Jesus Christ, during his millennial reign and going uh, living with you, your son and the spirit and other believers throughout the the ages and, and including the church and in, which will be those will be believers in the future, uh, reigning you, uh, reigning with you uh, into the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, we thank you, Father, for what you did for us at the cross of Calvary, demonstrating your great love to us when we were your enemies, and that at the just at, moment of, at the moment of justification through the baptism of the Spirit, raising us up and seating us with your Son Jesus Christ, even though we were dead in our sins and transgressions. So we thank you for this this grace policy that you've demonstrated toward us and giving us, uh, bestowing upon us unmerited blessings, uh, blessings that we receive because of the merits of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for him and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at your right hand and our union identification with him in those events in his life which make us uh, members of the bride of Christ and the, fut the, and the future rulers of this planet which will dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent. So we thank you for these blessings, and we thank you for uh, the grace you bestowed upon us Gentiles. Uh, we who were far away from you, we didn't have a covenant relationship with you. We didn't have the privileges and the blessings that the, were bestowed upon the Jewish people. But uh, you showed grace to us as well, like you did them. And uh, by saving us through the merits of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you for this study in Ephesians, and I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us here today those are live or those are watching or listening to these classes at a later date. I thank you for the technology, the people taking advantage of it, and I pray there'll be no problems with the streaming video by YouTube, and thank you for the, pro the service that they provide, and I also pray there'll be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload of these things to our various websites, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us, and I pray you use those mightily and protect them from the evil one, as you've been doing. I pray that today that you would help your children in the audience to learn, understand what's being taught, 
uh, to concentrate by the power of the Spirit and to make personal application by the Spirit so that they can continue to grow up spiritually and become more like your son, Jesus Christ, and thought, word, and action. I also pray uh, that if there's any uh, people in the audience that are not yet Christians, I thank you for them, and I pray the Spirit would help them to understand at some point the gospel so that they, make an, they can make a decision to either accept or reject your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. And we know that you desire all people to be saved and come to an experiential knowledge of the truth. And I also pray that you'd help me today as uh, uh, your instrument, to be used as your instrument. I pray the Spirit would use me mightily, help me, help me to be humble and sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction and to communicate your full counsel today with regards to this passage in Ephesians 2.20 and, and particularly that aspect of the verse which talks about the fact that your son is the cornerstone of the church and help me to do this again with reverence, respect, and power so that your people could receive the necessary spiritual nourishment and continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, your son. So it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to continue and actually wrap up our study of Ephesians 2.20 and continue our study of Ephesians chapter 2. We're almost done actually with the chapter. And so uh, uh, we uh, will be uh, looking at, finish off verse 20 by noting again the fact that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And this is another metaphor that Paul is using here to, dis to describe our relationship, uh, the church's relationship, Jew both Jew and Gentile, church age believers, their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was what we'll be doing here today. Now, uh, as we have been doing, we'll read the whole chapter. We'll read the, uh, in the New Living Translation today. I like to use all the modern translations. And uh, so today we'll read chapter 2 in the New Living Translation. And then we're going to go and look at my translation of this same chapter and then finish off verse 20. So, and the reason why we do that is, again, to pay attention to context. And uh, I'm trying to teach you that and uh, to get it into your head. So we don't mean, we don't interpret a verse out of its context. With context, meaning what has immediately preceded it or what's going to follow it. And we pay attention not only to that, but we take a look at the bigger context, uh, how it looks in, in relation to the rest of the letter, the book that we're studying, or the New Testament and the, and the Old Testament, or both altogether. So very important we pay attention to context, and we also, of course, pay attention to literary context as well. So uh, let's read again, for the, uh, let's read today from the New Living Translation. In chapter 2, it says, and Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And then it says in verse 3, All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and He, is, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when, we, when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us up from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us at all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days... You were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. 
You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations, and he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him and peace to the Jews who are near. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles also are being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So uh, as we've been pointing out in previous classes, uh, this Paul, Paul wrote this in, during his first Roman imprisonment between the years of 60 and 62 AD. And he was under house arrest and he was chained to a Roman soldier and he was awaiting his appeal before Caesar. We know that from Acts chapter 28. Uh, the recipients of this letter were not only uh, Ephesian Christian community, but also the various Christian communities in the Roman province of Asia and during that time. And uh, thus it's a circular letter. Uh, we see the purpose of this letter is uh, that Paul wanted to maintain the unity that existed in a positional and a perfective sense in the church. He wanted that to main, be maintained experientially, and particularly between the Jewish and Gentile uh, wings of the church. And order that, and to do this, they must practice the command to love one another, uh, and all that it involves the command of John uh, thirteen thirty four uh, and thirty five: love one another as I have loved Jews and all Jew, not Jew, love you. <laughs> That's pretty good. Love one another as I have loved you, <laughs> and of course they were Jews who he's talking to, and uh, also uh, John fifteen twelve he says that as well. So we have uh, this great epistle, and so. Positionally, as we pointed out, through the baptism of the Spirit and our justification, there's unity between Jew and Gentile believers. And uh, and uh, we also see that in a perfected sense, that'll be the case when we get a resurrection body at the rapture of the church, which is imminent. And so that's where, uh, and so right now we're in the section of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, as we've been pointing out, where Paul's talking about this new humanity composed of both Jewish and Gentile church age believers. And uh, this, and then when we get to chapter three, verses one through thirteen, we'll see that uh, it's a mystery that all uh, Jewish uh, Gentile believers, church age believers, would be united uh, with Jewish church age believers and being co-heirs, co-members of the body of Christ, and co-partakers of the messianic promise, because of faith in Christ, the justification and union identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit. That was not known to Old Testament saints that this would be the case that the Gentiles would be on equal footing with the Jewish believers. We knew in the Old Testament, and Paul makes this clear in Romans 15 and other places, that uh, Gentiles would get saved and worship Jesus and be a part of the millennial reign, yes. But we did not know about the church and then and that uh, Jewish and Gentile believers would be on equal standing. And this would be shocking to the, the Jews of Paul's day and the apostles because, uh, as Paul's been describing for us, the Gentiles uh, were didn't have a covenant relationship with God like the Jews. 
And Paul enumerates in, Ro in Romans 3, beginning of that chapter, and Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, enumerates the, the various privileges it is that the Jews have that Gentile people don't have. Uh, remember, uh, the, the scriptures uh, were given to the Jewish people. It's a Jewish book. Uh, we also see that the Messiah would be, uh, be a Jew. Uh, we also see that the, the patriarchs and the unconditional promises uh, that were given to them are given to the Jewish people. Uh, we have the, the unconditional covenants, the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants, the Mosaic Covenant, the law, the tabernacle worship. All these things were given to the Jewish, Jewish people and not the Gentiles. In fact, uh, because of the dietary regulations, as we've been pointing out in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, there was a hostility between the Jewish and Gentile races because of the law. That was what the, caused the hostility between the two. In one sense, there was a hostility because the dietary regulations prohibited the J Jewish people from having meals with the Gentiles. And the reason why God instituted those dietary regulations when Israel was going into the land under Joshua after Moses' death was to protect them from worshiping the pagan gods that they were uh, uh, of the people, the, the people, the gods that the people were worshiping in Canaan at that time, because the various foods that God said were unclean for the Jews were associated with the worship of these various pagan gods that the Canaanites worshipped. So he's trying to protect them from idolatry. And then we see the other reason why there was hostility because of the law between the two races is that uh, the Jews were arrogant about the fact that they got the law and they thought they were better than the Gentiles. They didn't realize it was given to them by grace like everything else. They didn't earn or deserve it and they weren't better than the other nations. And uh, so, uh, they, so they were, there was, that was the reason why there was hostility between the two. But Jesus Christ, when he suffered the wrath of God on the cross, by, uh, you know, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then uh, he suffered the, 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 the scourging, two scourgings and the crucifixion itself and physical death. And uh, when he went through that for us so that we wouldn't suffer through these things in the lake of fire forever, and he lived a life of perfect obedience to the law and uh, that we couldn't, uh, when he did that, he demolished the, the law. The law was done away with because he fulfilled the law perfectly in his perfect life and his perfect obedience to his heavenly father. And so the consequences of not obeying the law, he, he, he dealt with, with it, suffering the wrath of God in our place. All right, so the law is not an issue anymore. And uh, so we see that uh, the Gentiles, through their faith in Jesus Christ that sent salvation, like the Jews, uh, who were declared justified through faith in Jesus Christ, where they were now united together. Not only were both believers, Jewish and Gentile believers, united Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father, but also Gentile believers were as well. In fact, in, uh, in June of 33 AD, on the day of Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2, the, the Jewish believers uh, they, uh, that Peter evangelized, and of course, Peter and the, the apostles who were already believers in Jesus, Jesus, they received the baptism of the Spirit. And uh, and then we see on, in Acts chapter 2, the Gentiles started to receive it with the family of Cornelius. And Peter had to be told by God in a vision three times that he could eat all uh, unclean food now, and uh, and thus he could go to a Gentile's house and have a meal, because somebody was going to be knocking on his door very shortly that was sent by Corne uh, Cornelius to Peter to give him the gospel and his family. And so... Uh, this is fantastic. So as Paul says in Galatians 3, 26 through 28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, all the one in Christ Jesus. And so this is an extremely incredible thing that's happened. And it, uh, it solves the problem of race. You know, there was a racial problems between the Jews and Gentiles. 
that's been demolished because of what uh, of justification by faith and you know and, and also the baptism of the spirit so what uh, what uh, the world can't do through their various uh, ideologies and laws and uh, social programs uh, the gospel was able to do and uh, and and demolish that racial uh, problem that was between the two races and this should be a lesson to the church today in America and dealing with race problems and so uh, this is where we're at so let's look at uh, Ephesians 2 1 now the whole chapter in my translation and we'll wrap up our study of verse 20 today so it says in verse uh, 1 Ephesians 2 1 in my translation now correspondingly even though each and every one of you is a corporate unit we're spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions in other words because of your sins each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age with which is the production of the cosmic world system in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler Satan, of course, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, unsaved people, unregenerate people. Verse 3, among whom each and every one of us in the Christian community also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh, in other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, the imputation of Adam's sin at physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy because of the exercise of His great love, with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit in the Christian community, we're spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions. He, the Father, caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you Gentiles as a corporate unit are saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us in the Christian community as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Notice the figure of metonymy there, which is a little bit different than your translation at that point in verse 6 at the end, because Paul's using the figure of metonymy shorthand, where the person of Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union and identification with him. Verse 7 says, Then he did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come, the incomparable wealth which is the product of his grace, because of kindness, for the benefit of each and every one of us. Again, here we have the figure of autonomy. Here's the reason why. Because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you in the Gentile Christian community are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation originated from, never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot, for their own benefit, <coughs> excuse me, uh, enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Verse 11. Now we have the inference uh, in, uh, of uh, what Paul's just stated in the first 10 verses. It says, each and every one of you in the Gentile Christian community must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belonged to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation 
uncircumcision by those who have received the designation circumcision, the Jews, with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each one of you Gentiles used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. So notice verse 12, and I've been pointing this out, like the first three verses of the verse are describing the pre-conversion or the pre-justification, or we could say an unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians. And this is true of us. And so we see that uh, in ver- the first three verses are showing the, 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 the Gentile Christian community's relationship uh, uh, to God uh, uh, in, uh, prior to justification. Um, and that there was no relationship. In fact, there was, we were enslaved to sin, Satan, and his cosmic system. And then in verse 12, we had no relationship with regenerate Israel, the remnant of Israel, the believing remnant that's in the, uh, uh, that God had. Uh, and uh, we, uh, so we had no relationship with God in that area, and, and with Israel. We had no relationship with Israel either. So we had no relationship with Israel, no relationship with regenerate Israel. So what are we going to do? Well, like verse 4 Uh, Verse 13 gives us the good news. In fact, verses 13 through 22, like verses 4 through 10, give us the good news for us Gentile Christians. It says in verse 13, However, because of your faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus, each one of you Gentiles, as a corporate unit who formerly were far away, have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, namely by causing both groups to be one, Specifically, by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility, and that's between the two races with each other and the two with God. In other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity. What what was the means by which he did this? It was by means of faith in himself and justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit. Thus he caused peace to be established, and that's again, between the two races with each other and the two races with God. So there's a double reconciliation there. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross, consequently, he, Jesus Christ, put to death the hostility, and that's again between the two races with each other and the two with God. And the means by which he did it, by means of faith in himself and justification, and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit, and correspondingly, verse 17, he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you Gentiles, namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us in the Christian community, both Jewish Jew and Gentile believers, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one Spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, each and every one of you Gentiles as a corporate unit are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but each, but rather each and every one of you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. Why? Because each and every one of you as a corporate unit in the Gentile Christian community have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel, to each of you by the apostles as well as the prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. On the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union identification with him, the whole body 
is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith, union and identification with the Lord. And then verse 22, in other words, by appropriating by faith, your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the spirit. So as we pointed out in our last class, Ephesians 2.20 has two sections to it, two parts. The first is a causal participial clause, as we pointed out. And uh, for those who are interested, and we do have people who are pastors or studying to be one or are interested in this stuff in the language of scholars. It's a, we have a causal participial clause, which is in the Greek text, epikoidomethentes epitothemilio ton apostolon kai propheton, which I translate, because each and every one of you is a corporate unit, have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each of you by the apostles as well as the prophets. Uh, the, the, the net Bible, uh, they translate it in their, tra- in their translation, they render it uh, because you've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And, uh, we see also the second part of that verse is a temporal participial clauses clause. And it's this, it's antos acrogonia ayu autu Christo Yesu, which is translated by myself simultaneously. He himself, namely Christ Jesus is the cornerstone and the net Bible, they render that uh, uh, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So the causal participial clause uh, is actually presenting the reason why the recipients of this letter, who again were Jew- Gentile church-age believers living in the Roman province of Asia, it's telling them, it's presenting the reason why they were fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. And that's the saints from previous dispensations. It asserts that it was because they had been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to them, by the apostles and the New Testament prophets, which resulted in the Father declaring them justified as a result of having exercised faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the temporal participial clause, which we're going to look at for the rest of the class, because we looked at the causal participial clause in our previous class, the temporal participial clause indicates contemporaneous contemporaneous action with the causal participial clause. And that's indicated, I marked that by the fact, by using the, the English word simultaneously, to mark that, that uh, the fact that they, this contemporaneous action going on between the two. So this temporal participial clause asserts that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone of this building, and specifically the temple of God. Like Ephesians 2.19, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, contains a metaphor. As we pointed out in previous classes in, the, in verse 19, Paul employs two metaphors to describe Gentile Christians, not only in relation to the Jewish Christian community, but in relation to every believer and every Old Testament dispensation of the past. And the first metaphor is that Gentile Christians are citizens in a city. And the second is that they're members of a family. So we use, he uses these two metaphors, as we pointed out in previous classes. He uses these two metaphors in order to emphatically emphasize <laughs> that they, are, they share equal status and the kingdom of God with Jewish believers in past Old Testament dispensations and with those believers who lived in the dispensations before the establishment of the nation of Israel. In other words, Paul is stating in emphatic terms to the Gentile Christian community that they are by no means second-rate citizens. So, I, I, you know, I, I'm trying to bring this out for you in the last class, but uh, us, the church has been, for 2,000 years, the church is basically composed of Gentiles, Okay. Early on, the Jews were the, the predominant force in the church. 
But uh, with the rejection of the gospel by the majority of Jews uh, in, uh, in Judea, and then throughout the various cities of the Roman Empire that they were dispersed, and especially after the, 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 the Roman war with, uh, with uh, Israel in 60 to 60, uh, 66 to 70 AD, we see that the Gentiles were flocking to the gospel. And so, uh, so today, we really don't understand, we don't really appreciate what we have as Gentile church age believers, because we we didn't you know we didn't have we don't have unless you know it I mean, we weren't living during that time where you know you get the apostles and they're all Jews they were raised under the law they walked with Jesus he you know he tricked the apostles and early Jesus early disciples were raised the dietary regulations of the law keeping the law and all that stuff and so they had nothing to do with Gentiles. As Acts chapter ten tells us, as I pointed out, you know Peter was told in a vision, you could, you know, with a, with a, that he could eat all animals, which was one. He told him that the, the, Jesus has abrogated the dietary regulations of the law, which are actually were to protect them from worship, getting involved in the pagan worship ceremonies uh, in Canaan when they moved into that land to dispossess the Canaanites. So you had, uh, so uh, then that meant the implication was he could go into a Gentile home. And because, as I said before, somebody from Cornelius's family knocked on the door and asked him if he'd come to see Cornelius and his family, enter his home and give him the gospel. If the Lord didn't give him that vision, and he had to do it three times, Peter never goes in that guy's home. So there was all. So in other words, there was a lot of culture shock, but early on in the church's history. And if you read Paul's writings, and Ephesians is not—I don't think it's emphasized enough uh, with expositors, interpreters of Ephesians. He's definitely concerned about this. The, in other words, he's concerned about that the Jewish and Gentile wings of the church get along with each other. And they're going to do that through the practice of the command to love one another. John 13, 34 and uh, John 15, 12. And all that involves. And so that's uh, so it's very important. And that's the, that's the purpose of this letter. If you read Romans, Romans is uh, another, uh, in Romans 14, Paul talks about the dietary regulations of the law there, clean and unclean. And he's talking about the weak and the strong in the context of the dietary regulations. And what does he mean by that? Those who are weak in the faith are those primarily Jewish believers who were raised under the dietary regulations of the law. Uh, they were weak because they didn't realize that they could eat all foods and the, uh, the unclean, unclean, the dietary regulations of the law were abrogated, were put, were put away by Jesus in Mark chapter 7. And it's clear in Acts chapter 10. So they could eat all foods. All right. So... Where, and so uh, the strong in the faith are those who believe that, whether they're Jew or Gentile, and in that context he's talking about primarily Jewish believers and Gentile believers, they believe they could eat all foods because Jesus taught you could eat all foods. And that was what he told his apostles. And so those are the strong in faith. And so he's like saying, I don't want you to, you know, to break from each other, not have fellowship with each other, have an attitude toward each other, and not have any anything to relationship with each other or fellowship with each other because of these, because of what you guys are eating or not eating, Okay. And so, but he wanted them to know that you can eat all foods. He's an apostle of Jesus. But if, you know, if for those people who are, the Jewish believers are not quite there yet, and Peter was used to be one of those guys, uh, you know, you have to be patient with those people. And they need to be taught the word of God and taught the teachings of Jesus and the apostles so that they can be strong in the faith. So this is what's going on in this, in this, in this, uh, in Ephesians. And it was happening in the early church. I and mean, there was other con conflicts. Um, in Acts chapter 15, somebody was, uh, Paul was going to the Gentiles and 
uh, Judaizers who were Jewish Christians, they believed in Jesus, but they thought the Gentiles had to get under the law like they did. And of course, the church, First Church Council in Acts 15 said, no, that's not the case. They don't have to live like a Jew. Uh, they, 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 they're not under the law. We couldn't keep the law ourselves. So what are we putting them under the law? It wasn't even given to them in the first place. So, uh, so therefore, this is what we got going on here. And this is why Paul, what he says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, would be so wonderful uh, for the Jewish, uh, the Gentile wing of the church. It would also be uh, something that, an eye opener for the Jewish believers, and they would have to practice the command to love one another as they patiently, uh, you know, tolerated uh, Gentiles in their fellowship. You know, they had to be learned to get along with each other. And so this is what Paul's worrying about, uh, concerned about. So therefore, we can see that these two metaphors present an emphatic contrast between the unregenerate state of these Gentile church-age believers and their present regenerate state as justified sinners who are in union with Jesus Christ and identified with Him and His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. Now, here in Ephesians 2.20, Paul employs a building metaphor and specifically a temple metaphor in order to describe the church. Now, the adjective akrogoniaisos, akrogoniaios, that's how you pronounce it. Akrogoniaios is a translated cornstone. It's a, that's what the word means. And it appears in this temporal participial clause in Ephesians 2.20 because this word, this it's an adjective, akrogoniaios, pertains to this first stone laid in the construction of a building at the outer corner of two intersecting masonry walls. So this word, translated cornerstone, akrogoniaios, pertains to the first stone laid in the construction of a building at the outer corner of two intersecting masonry walls. Specifically, it refers to the cornerstone of a building. And it's used here figuratively of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone of the church. So specifically, it describes his person. And we could say his life is his, his, uh, his obedient, perfectly obedient Jew, the God-man. It specifically describes his person, his life, we could say, his teaching, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father as the cornerstone of the church. Now, this word is actually, as it is, is, is with among scholars, is cause some consternation. And there's some debate a little bit about this. But I'm going to show you from several quotes, and uh, the first being the Net Bible, and uh, that it is speaking of a cornerstone, not a capstone. That's the issue. Some scholars, and they're good ones, who think this is the capstone. But as we're going to see, that doesn't really make too much sense. It's really talking about the cornerstone. And we're going to talk about what the cornerstone was all about. So in the Net Bible, they make the following quote, comment about this word for cornerstone, acrogoniaios. They write the, they say the following, and I'm quoting. The meaning of acrogoniaios is greatly debated. The meaning capstone is proposed by Jeremiah. But the most important text for this meaning is late and possibly not even an appropriate parallel. The only place Akrogoniaios is used in the Septuagint is Isaiah 28, 16. And there, it clearly refers to a cornerstone that is part of a foundation. Furthermore, the imagery in this context has the building growing off the cornerstone upward, whereas if Christ were the capstone, he would not assume his position until the building was finished which verses 21 and 22 argue against, end of quote. Let me give you some more, uh, uh, give you some more quotes from other scholars. Benjamin Merkel, and uh, he's a great scholar. He has the following quote, and this is uh, 
from his, let's see, what is it? Uh, what's the name of his thing? It's the, um, is it, is that's translation, uh, it's not his translation, his, uh, what do you call it on Ephesians? Um, what do you call it? His uh, commentary. So, Benjamin Merkel writes this, this is the, he says the following, he says, this term only occurs in Isaiah 28, 16, which is what Paul is alluding to here, and in 1 Peter 2, 6, which quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Now, Merkel writes, the precise referent is debated, as the Net Bible just pointed out, and I did, since it could refer to one cornerstone or foundation stone. Most commentators, he says, choose that. Or a capstone, a crowning stone, as the Net Bible pointed out, Jeremiah stated or proposed. Now, the first option, the cornerstone, the foundation stone, is to be preferred for four reasons. One, first of all, he says it best fits the context of Ephesians 2 where the spiritual temple is not yet complete. Second, it best fits the Old Testament context of Isaiah 28:16, in which this word akrogenios, uh, cornerstone, is juxtaposed with themelion. Third, the term is used as the foundation stone by Peter, as we pointed out in 1 Peter 2:6. Fourthly, Paul often stressed Christ's role as the foundation, 1 Corinthians 3:11, As the cornerstone, Jesus, is the most significant part of the foundation, bearing the weight of the building and tying the walls firmly together, end of quote. Uh, David McLeod, an, an excellent uh, scholar and uh, an excellent, uh, he, he teaches at uh, Emmaus Bible College and a great commentator. And I, I read, read many of his, uh, his journal articles. He's a great guy. I never met him personally. I'd like to meet him personally someday. And all these guys, really. <laughs> David McLeod writes the following. He says, cornerstones were great blocks of stone that ran up to the corner of a building. Archaeologists have found one in the southern wall of the temple, measuring, measuring 38 feet 9 inches. A cornerstone is one of the great Old Testament pictures of the Messiah. It says in Isaiah 26, he says, Behold, I'm lying in, laying in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. So he says the cornerstone was the primary stone at the angle of the structure by which the architect fixed his standard for the bearings of the walls and cross walls throughout the building. The thought, no doubt, is that Jesus Christ is the one who unites and sustains the church, the temple of God. Unity and growth, McLeod says, depend upon him. He is its keystone who holds the whole structure together. In verse 21, Paul adds that the whole building is growing up under his direction. In whom? In the New American Standard, in Encurio, to form a temple in the Lord. He is its truth. Salvation depends upon the saving truth about him. John 14, 6 for documentation. Jesus is its life. Salvation depends upon his atoning work. He is its guide. The New Testament scriptures give direction to his people. He is its government. All of its leaders must look to him, the chief shepherd. He is its holiness. The sanctifying spirit is his gift. He is its safety. He is the one who keeps and protects it. He is its center, and he is the one who unites his people. He is their unifying center, and he is its hope. It is he, Jesus Christ, whose appearing is the most is the motivating hope of his people. End of quote. And that's McLeod's uh, journal article in Emmaus Bible Journal, uh, the broken wall, or from alienation to reconciliation. That's uh, I think that was the fourteenth edition, page one sixty three. Great two three great quotes there. So uh, so we see that uh, these scholars point out that it can't be cop, uh, capstone. Because the whole idea with the cornerstone is a better idea. Because in a cornerstone of a building, 
it's everything's fit together and it relies on that cornerstone, okay? And it could be the capstone. So it's a better metaphor uh, if it's a, it's the cornerstone rather than a capstone. So Jeremiah is in the minority and probably for good reason, <laughs> but uh, because it doesn't make sense and it's not used that way for those four reasons uh, that uh, Merkel just pointed out. So when we talk about, uh, and if you look at the New, Merc, uh, New Living Translation, it says in verse 20, so we together we're his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And it says, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. The Net Bible, they translate this, uh, uh, the, the last, uh, the temporal participial clause with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Let me give you another translation. The ESV, they, they, they translate the uh, temporal participle clause in verse 20, uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. But if you notice my translation of that particular temporal participle clause, participle clause is that simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. So I'm going to explain my translation. But first of all, as was the case in Ephesians 1.1, 2, 3, 5, 10, 12, 17, 20, 2, 5, 6, 7, 10, 12, and 13. The proper name, Christos, Yesu, excuse me, Christo, which is Christ. Here in Ephesians 2, 20, like it's been the case to, since the, uh, the, when the, when the uh, where the word's been used throughout the, the book up to this point. This word Christ emphasizes that Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, delivered the church-age believer from the sin nature personal sins, the devil and his cosmic system, spiritual and physical death, condemnation through his substitutionary, uh, eternal condemnation through his substitutionary spiritual and physical death and resurrection. And this word Christ denotes the Messiahship, therefore, of Jesus. Thus, he's the deliverer of the human race in three areas, through his death, resurrection, ascension, and session. One, Satan, his cosmic system, and the old sin nature, as we saw in the first three verses of chapter two. Now, the Lord's Messiahship has a fourfold significance. One, separation into God. Two, authorization from God, the Father. Three, deny, divine enablement through the Spirit. And number four, the coming deliverer. So it also signifies, signifies to us the uniqueness of Jesus, of Nazareth, who is the God-man. So this word Christos also signifies that Jesus of Nazareth, served God the Father exclusively, and this was manifested by his execution of the Father's plan for salvation, which was accomplished uh, through his voluntary, substitutionary, spiritual, and physical deaths on the cross. And this word signifies that Jesus of Nazareth has been given authority by God the Father to forgive sins, to give eternal life, and authority over all creation and every creature as a result of the execution of the Father's salvation plan. It denotes that Jesus of Nazareth was perpetually guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit during his first advent. And lastly, it signifies that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised deliverer of the human race from the bondage of Satan, his cosmic system, and the old Adamics in nature. Now, there's, uh, th this particular word contains the figure of metonymy, as it, uh, it, it often does in the first two chapters of Ephesians. Paul uses shorthand, as uh, I've been pointing out to you. He, uh, you see the, in the first two chapters, uh, he says, in him, in the beloved, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in himself. That's containing the figure of metonymy. And this is shorthand that Paul's using, we would call it. What do I mean by that? Well, he's using the person of Christ for faith in him at justification and our union identification with him at justification through the baptism of the Spirit. 
So instead of saying all of that, like I put into my translation, he just uses the shorthand and everybody knows what he was talking about. And a lot of, I'm not the only person, scholar or pastor that sees this. Many others well before me for centuries have seen this. So this particular word Christ, it contains the figure of autonomy, uh, which means that Jesus Christ is put for his person. We could say his life as well. Teaching and crucifixion is death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father. So it's because of our faith in Jesus Christ, the justification and our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of this building, this temple, which is composed of Jewish and Gentile church age believers. All right, there we, got, there we have it. So the word for Jesus, Yesu in the Greek, it refers to the human nature of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And it functions as what we call a genitive simple apposition. You might say, well, what does that mean to me? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means to you. It simply clarifies who Jesus is, who Christ is here. He's Jesus of Nazareth, since there were many in the in the first century who made the claim. So let me show you something about this. You look at the net, net Bible. It says, uh, you see this phrase, in Christ Jesus. You see it in the net Bible, verse 20. And you look throughout, you know, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in the in the, the, the Greek-speaking person, they would understand Paul saying, the Christ who is Jesus. Because uh, this word Jesus, you could put who is before it. Because in the Greek text, it's in Greek grammar, it's a genitive of simple apposition. It's clarifying who this Christ is because there were many in the first century who made the claim of being the Messiah. Okay? So that's why when you see that, he's, he, 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 Paul, the, the translators are not wrong to translate it the way they do, but I'm just kind of bringing it out to you what the original audience would understand Paul to be doing and the translators knew to be doing as well. But for the sake of smoothing the, a smoother translation, they do that what they do. And I don't always care about the smoothness of the translation. I try to do the best they can. So the verb amy, you know, it says Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, it says uh, Christ in being, you see the word being in the, in the ESV, uh, the New Living Translation, I mean, they, you, they have is, all right? And that's translating the word amy, which means it is. However, it's uh, it has a wide semantic range, is in what sense, or you see it translated are in your Bibles, A-R-E. In what sense? Well, the verb me, because it is a wide semantic range, this word. The verb me is expressing the idea that Jesus Christ's person, his teaching, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, set at the right, resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father, possesses inherently the characteristic, quote unquote, of being the chief cornerstone of the church. So, uh, let's see if I have it in my, no, I don't, but oh yes, I do. Let's, I have this uh, expanded translation I use, and I'll bring it out to you. What it, it actually is expressing to a, he, a Greek-speaking person, they would understand it, but for the sake of trans, smoothness of translation, they don't translate it like this, the modern translations. So uh, it says, um, okay, here, simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ, who is Jesus, exists in the state of possessing inherently the characteristic of being the chief cornerstone. That's the idea what the Greek would tell you. But for the smoothness, for the sake of translation, the smoothness in translation, it's all right to put is, okay? So my job is to bring this stuff out to you. They are expositor, your interpreter. So you get a little bit more, because the translators can't do that. I mean, I can get away with doing, 
making a, a wordy translation like I do because I'm your interpreter, so they can't. So uh, we see here that this verb Amy, it's expressing again the idea that our Lord's person, we could say his life too, teaching, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father possesses inherently the characteristic, quote-unquote, of being the chief cornerstone of the church. And the participle conjugation of this verb functions as a temporal participle. What does that mean? It indicates contemporaneous action with the action of the aorist tense of the verb ep akoidameo. So, let me show you in the Net Bible. You see, we pointed this in the last class, pointed this out. It says, because you've been built, that's translating the verb ep And so it says, because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, the word, uh, they don't, tra- the Net Bible doesn't translate it, uh, the word ame. Let me give you the ESV instead. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. See, this word being, ame, it's in the participle form. It's a temporal participle. And that means it's as contemporaneous action with this verb, built. Or as the Net Bible translates it, because you've been built. Great translation there. So it means contemporaneous action. Thus, the reason why I translated this this temporal participle clause, and I start off with the word simultaneously, to indicate contemporaneous action between the two words. So in other words, when the, the ESV says, we were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the other statement, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, or the cornerstone, they they happen simultaneously. They, 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 they happen at the exact same time. So therefore, this would express the idea that the church is built upon the foundation, which we pointed out is the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel to them when they were unsaved by the apostles and the prophets, while simultaneously, quote-unquote, Jesus Christ's person, his teaching, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the writing of the Father is the chief cornerstone of the church. The participle conjugation of this verb functions as a genitive of absolute, which serves to distinguish Jesus Christ from his apostles and prophets by asserting that he's the chief cornerstone of the church. Specifically, it serves to distinguish him from his apostles and prophets by emphasizing that his person, his teaching, his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father is the chief cornerstone of the church. So this genitive absolute construction is uh, is telling us, uh, it's emphasizing to us that our Lord's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session the right hand of the Father, his person, his life, his teaching, it's emphasizing and distinguishing him from his apostles and prophets. He's the chief cornerstone, not them. They're the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. The genitive absolute construction is used by Paul to emphasize this and to make a distinction here. So, as we close, a couple of things here. As a, if you're a Gentile church age believers, most believers are today in the church age, and there are Jewish believers out there, and I know a few. So uh, what you need to understand is you should first of all thank God tonight or today after this class and say, thank you, Lord, for putting me on equal footing with Jewish believers and, uh, and previous dispensations. That would never be the case. Not that you couldn't be saved, but you don't have the, prior, the privileges uh, in Old Testament times. If you were Gentile and you believed in the God of Israel, and many did like Rahab, uh, Ruth, okay, and many people did, they were Gentiles, but uh, you weren't on the same equal footing as a Jew that was in a covenant relationship with God. You didn't have the same privileges, 
okay, as the Gentile, as the Jewish people did in the Old Testament. And in Jesus' day, in the first century, in the, in the first advent. But now during the church age, where, where Jewish believers were, were equal, were royal priests, we both we all have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling us. We we are in union with Christ just like Jewish believers. We're co as I mean, look at this passage. We can, I said I was going to close, but let me we'll finish off with this. Look at this passage. We put it up this last in our last class. Paul kind of kind of trying to emphasize um, the tremendous grace that God has bestowed upon the Jewish uh, the Gentile church, wing of the church. In chapter three, verses one through thirteen, look at this. It says, "For this reason," Paul says, "I." The prisoner, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that by revelation, the divine secret, the mystery, was made known to me, as I wrote before briefly. When reading this, you'll be able to understand my insight into the secret of Christ. Now, this secret, this mystery, in most translations, Musterion's translated mystery, not secret, but secret's probably better. Now, this secret not known to, was not disclosed to people in former generations, like in the Old Testament, as it now has been revealed during the church age, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Namely, that through the gospel, the Gentiles, this is the content of the mystery, that the, through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body of Christ, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, the messianic promise. And this phrase, in Christ Jesus, figure metonymy, because of our, in causal sense, because of our faith in Jesus at justification as Gentiles, and our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit, we are now fellow ears with Jewish believers, Gentile, uh, and uh, fellow members of the body of Christ with them and fellow partakers of the Messianic promise. That's incredible. Okay? So people, that's why then you and I, we, we, I mean, we couldn't ask for a better dispensation in history to be living in and should thank God for that. Here's the other thing. How should it affect our conduct? I mean, we got great privileges and we have, with privilege comes responsibility. We're in union with Christ. And uh, we're supposed to represent him. And we do that by practicing the command to love one another as he loved us. And by this, all people know we're his disciples. So our behavior is very important. We must live in a manner consistent of, uh, in a manner consistent with who God made us to be at our justification through the baptism of the Spirit. And, uh, what, is, and what we're going to be in a resurrection body uh, at the uh, rapture, the resurrection of the church and reigning with Christ for a thousand years in his millennial reign. That should, what God, what God did for us in our past and what he did, he's going to do for us in the future should govern our behavior. And it shouldn't, and we, so when, you know, you see this, the New Testament writers doing this all the time. What God did for us at our justification, what he's going to do for us in the future, the rapture, the re rewards for faithful service at the Bama seat, if we're faithful in this life, we should live godly lives. We should, when we sin, confess it. Don't wait till tomorrow to confess it or three weeks from now or the next time you go to church. Keep short accounts with God. Confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9. And then, to stay in fellowship, learn and obey His Word. Learn and apply His Word. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Make it a priority to every day have sanctified time alone with God and prayer in the Word. And then every day, prayer in the Word. And also, you should have a pastor. 1 Peter 5.3, te Peter tells his fellow pastors that you have allotted to your charge a certain group of believers. So that means you're under authority of a pastor. And in fact, you can't grow to spiritual maturity without the function of a pastor. Uh, read Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16. You know, the function of my gift is to build up and edify the body of Christ so you can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can't do that. You can do that to a certain extent as, an, as by yourself, but then again, that's not the way God intended it to be. You need you to have a pastor and uh, so that he, he's, uh, he's, he's going to help you really grow 
spiritually. And, uh, and then also, uh, when you meet with other believers, you're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves as the habit of son. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses, what, 23 through 25? So we should be attending Bible class. If you don't have a Bible club, a church around your area that you can fellowship with and teach the Word of God and the teaching false doctrine in your area, then you can follow me on the internet. But you mean, you know, but really, uh, we really need to be, you know, to gather together with each other when you can. And, uh, and so that's very important, okay? Because why? Because w w what did God do for us at our justification? We're reading about this and what he's going to do for us in the future. I want to I wanna live my life in a, in a fashion that shows my thanks for him by living a godly life, by being obedient to him. And when I screw up and sin, I confess it. Don't hide it or pretend it never happened. You know, just confess it and then move on and and. Practice the word of God. Practice the command to love one another. If you don't meet with other believers, how are you going to practice the command to love one another? You know, if you don't interact with each other. And by the way, do you use your gift? What, what's your gift? Every one of us is, has a gift. The, the Holy At the moment of our justification, we receive gifts or assignments and positions in the body of Christ. They run on like gas. The car runs on gasoline or in some cases now electricity. Uh, so the spiritual gift that God gave us runs on the command, obedience to the command to love one another. Read 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians. So, you know, are you doing that? You know, and so are you meeting for corporate prayer in your church? So these are all the things are spiritual disciplines that we have. And the reason why many Christians today in America that I can speak for don't get more out of the relationship with God and they're lukewarm and they, they they're, you know, they just, they're not, they don't have any enthusiasm is because they don't put any effort into it. You know, just think about it. You know, how would you think of your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you put very little effort into your relationship with them? You think that relationship is going to be strong? No. So, now what do you think about God's end? God done, hasn't done anything wrong. It's us. We're the ones that are lazy and don't do anything about our relationship. You know? And so we need to do something about that. If I get you mad, good. I hope I got you good and mad if you're guilty. And, uh, and if you're doing what I'm telling you to do, you, you, the Spirit's not convicting you and the Spirit's, the Spirit's encouraging you. But if I rub you the wrong way, maybe the Spirit, and He is, is, uh, is, is, is getting at you and trying to help you. Not trying to hurt you, He's trying to help you to get the most out of your relationship with God. So put some effort into it. And thank God that you're, you as a Gentile believer are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ with Jewish believers and fellow partakers of the Messianic promise, all because of our faith in Jesus at justification and our union and identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. And so this is a beautiful thing that's happened to us. This was some of the, one of the un, uh, great unmerited blessings that God gave to us at our justification. Well, we'll pick this up on, what's today? It's Tuesday. We'll pick this up on Thursday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. Let's close in prayer. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Study your word. We pray that this lesson be a great encouragement and blessing to your people. And it would uh, it would inspire them to continue to go forward in your plan and learn and understand and apply your word in their daily life. Being a good steward with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that you gave to them. And based upon the fact that what you did for us and out of love at our justification through the baptism of the Spirit and what you're going to do for us out of love in the at the rapture, the resurrection of the church when we get our resurrection bodies. And if we're faithful in this life, rewards at the baby seat for faithful service. Help us to live our lives in a, play, in a fashion now, uh, before our death or the rapture, whichever comes for us, to live our lives now in a fashion that is honoring to you and your Son and, and the Holy Spirit and uh, in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.